The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I have to use my imagination. I know you're out there. You know, we use the uh, the YouTube live stream for the Sunday morning programs because right now we just have a we can only have a hundred people on Zoom, and we're exploring other options going forward. So we'll be having a visual image of the community, of course, would make it easier for us to feel part of a group of people that are interested in these teachings from the Buddha and how they can come alive and support us individually and communally support us in alleviating suffering at this time in this place. And I was particularly moved um, by a teaching that came my way recently from a friend of mine via an email, really well-known teaching from Maha Pajapati. Some of you remember this person from the time of the Buddha, the aunt that uh, nursed the Buddha, raised the Buddha, and then became the first bhikkhuni uh, ordained Buddhist nun and one of the awakened ones, and a, a really great teaching uh, teacher, rather, at the time of the Buddha. And uh, just the beautiful stories around her, and just the nature of the time, and nature of our time, too, in terms of women at the time of the Buddha wanting to practice as the men were practicing, and uh, finding it difficult for that to happen. But... Um, yeah, the, there's one particular story from the early discourses where Maja Pajapati, and we remember um, when you're at the center in the meditation hall on the altar, she's the figure standing right next to the statue of the Buddha. And uh, she comes to the Buddha, and as a, a wise person might say, you know, could you give me the teachings in brief? And I might expand that, like, for us at this time, you know, because complicated things, we our eyes tend to roll over, and we have this very, I'm not saying it's wise, but this very strong sense, like, I don't have the time for complicated, involved instructions. You know, give it to me short, give it to me direct, give it to me in a way that I can use it. And so I imagine that, Majapajapati, when she went to the Buddha, asking for instructions, practicing now as a nun, um, that it was similar to what some of us might say now, like, hey, it's a troubled time. Hey, my heart's troubled. I'm really looking for some practical, useful, liberating instructions that will help me take care of my own sensitive heart and help me to contribute to the woundedness and the suffering around me right? and not to even see those two things as necessarily different taking care of my own heart showing up for the world around me maybe it's useful for us to hold that like what's useful for me and what's a way for me to contribute and support do my work in the wider world, that they're not actually two different practices. 
And so this teaching um, is sometimes translated as in brief, because that's how Majapajapati asked the question, like, could you give me the teachings in brief? It would be good if the Blessed One would teach me the Dhamma in brief, such that having heard the Dhamma from the Blessed One, I might dwell alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute. You know, go for my morning sit, go for my retreat, and really use that time in a way that allows me to show up in the world. And this is important because we always hear that part of like doing my daily sit or doing a retreat day or even several days of retreat as if it ends there. But then, of course, for evidently, as the story goes, she lived to be 120 and, you know, was the eldest nun, the, the basic, uh, basically the leader of the nun community in those early years at the time of the Buddha. And, you know, a beloved, revered teacher for so many living in this very austere way, wandering from village to village, not really having a set location, and just teaching whoever shows up. Um, So that's called, you know, that's a life of engagement. And the Buddha responded to Maja Mahapajapati Gotami, so the same last name as the Buddha, same family as the Buddha. Gotama Buddha, sometimes we refer to this Buddha because of the family name, and Gotami, the the, uh, I, the long E sound, um, just means the female equivalent of Gotama. Gotami, the qualities of which you may know, these qualities lead to passion, Remember, passion means suffering, that disturbance in our heart. It's not often how we understand the word, but the the root of the word passion really means suffering. Like we have in the Christian tradition, the passion of Christ, to refer to that time on the cross. Um, These qualities lead to passion, not to dispassion, to being fettered, not to being unfettered, to accumulating, not to shedding, to self-aggrandizement, not to modesty, to discontent, not to contentment, to entanglement, not to seclusion, to laziness, not to arouse persistence, to being burdensome, not to unburden, not to being unburdensome. You may categorically hold, this is not the Dhamma, this is not the training, this is not the teacher's instruction. And these can and might appear really provocative to us, you know, and at any, you know, and many times in our life where it really seems like uh, the moment isn't isn't really asking for that spiritual move of putting everything down. It really seems to be asking for engagement. And I think the reason I thought it might be useful for us to look at the set of teachings is to, in a sense, step back and ask the question, well, what actually, like, what has life taught us? So not just theoretically, but actually in terms of what we've actually learned from life. What supports that fearless, creative, and beautiful engagement where we, the aftertaste 
is that the heart senses that the way I showed up, the way I engaged, was good. It leaves a good taste, a clean taste in the sense of, um, yeah, the impression left from the words I spoke, the words I didn't speak, the actions I took, the actions I refrained from taking. The heart actually feels lighter. Because oftentimes as we live our lives, as we engage the world, you know, we get heavier and heavier because the cumulative effect, the impressions left on our heart, it's like more and more weight. And there's sort of this, you know, this, um, I mean, it breaks my heart to think of it, but, you know, people living their lives and accumulating not wisdom and not freedom, but as the years, decades go by, people accumulate that weighted, bound up, oppressed heart. And when we're hurting, when we're oppressed, when we feel and are identified with being burdened in life, well, the the deep, not so helpful instinct is to want to make other people hurt. You know, it's sort of a strange and unfortunate tendency of our heart to not want to be alone when we're suffering. And we tend to strike out or spread the pain. So this is, uh, like I said, it, it may feel provocative to get these instructions. So I want to unpack them a little bit. And really unpack it from this place um, of humility. You know, that that knowing that we don't often know with great clarity how to alleviate suffering, that actually supports being a more um, powerful learner, knowing that we don't know. Because actually then we're going to be willing to listen and learn from success and from mistakes. And like all of our work, we want to begin from this place of humility and one way to ask the question to kind of bring in this heart quality is just to ask the simple question, am I deserving of love? Is this heart, this wounded or numb or angry or whatever kind of heart we're experiencing right now, is it deserving of love? Does this heart deserve to belong here in life, in this life, at this time? I'm not saying we do feel like we belong or that, you know, we have safety. I'm asking the question, does it seem right to ask, to try, do my best to uncover love, to discover love, to discover a sense of belonging, to discover or uncover a a deeper healing? Because we need that, at least that little thread, that little window that, yeah, yeah, I'm deserving of this. And and then going to what I was saying earlier, we want to expand the question. And, And to really feel into this directly now, like, are we all, all of us, even the so called evil ones, you know, the people we despise or the people we think are causing suffering? Are we all deserving of love? 
or are we all deserving the deepest healing that's possible? Do we all deserve, have in a sense, some rights to belong, to belong in this moment, in this world, this messy world? You see, it really changes how we approach the work of taking care of our suffering and the world's suffering. When we realize that I'm deserving of love and healing and belonging, you are deserving of real love, safety, healing, belonging. I don't know how it's all going to happen, but I have some real confidence that this is how it should be that we should be moving in this direction. So there's both the humility, but also a real sense of ground being grounded in what we do know, right? Like I do have some clarity, some conviction, some certainty even that we're deserving of love and healing, that it's a real possibility for this heart and for this world. And, you know, (laughs) This conviction, confidence comes from, it's like we can definitely screw it up. I can act and think in ways that really messes this heart up and contributes to the suffering in the wider world. So if we can mess it up, why can't we heal and move in that direction? So this is just um, that work of realizing that I care And this heart, I care about this heart. I care about your heart. I care about this exposure to suffering. I care about your exposure to suffering. And I'm willing to be in the game. I'm willing to be in the wildness of the present moment, this world, my body, my heart, my life, because I sense what might be possible. I don't know if people have caught this. We'll send the link out in the weekly email tomorrow, but uh, Shelley Graff, the Associate Director at Common Ground, and our beloved staff Dharma teacher, along with myself, um, was interviewed on uh, the 10% Happier podcast. It's really a great podcast. Uh, Dan Harris, who does the interviews, has interviewed some of the real spiritual greats, including the Dalai Lama and Binger Rinpoche and Joan Halifax and Sebene. And I mean, just in the last uh, couple of months alone, uh, Lama Rod Owens and yeah, just some great uh, interviews. I, I encourage you to listen and especially to listen to the podcast uh, where Dan Harris interviewed Shelley. And I thought it was one of the most impactful conversations to white people talking about the Dharma, the liberating practice of waking up to whiteness and how our hearts and minds, all of us, you know, differently, but all of us have been conditioned, culturally conditioned around race. It's a construction, but it's a construction that's very alive and deeply embedded in, in everything in our culture. So we, it becomes part of who we are, whether we want it to be part of who we are or not. Anyway, it was just a beautiful conversation. And One of the takeaways um, is this quote that from Shelley, the world is a mess in so many ways and we contribute to that every moment of our lives. 
either in our silence or in our engagement. And this really breaks my heart. It's like so true. It's like we don't have any right to sort of give up on the world because that has a really powerful impression on our hearts and on, our, on the hearts of the world. Our only sort of the only appropriate response, useful response in terms of our own well-being and everybody else's well-being is to take the role of a learner. Like, I care. I'm pretty sure it's appropriate for me to care about my heart and then can't not care about your heart. Once I start to care about my own heart, I realize I care about your heart. And once I sense the possibility, like, yeah, I can do harm or I can live in a way that's healing, then that that desire to heal this heart just naturally flows over to the desire to contribute to the healing of everyone's heart because it can't be separated out. We see that we're in the soup together. There's no real healing here without, that doesn't mean I'm going to solve the problem of the world. It just means in addressing my own suffering, I'm including your suffering. As I unpack the roots of my suffering, I need to unpack how I'm part of the roots of the suffering in the world, that we don't distinguish those two things. So when we, you know, when we realize our sort of personal predicament, it's easy for us to kind of get obsessed about the woundedness of it. And I think it's important, all of us, to turn the corner a little. It's really always true in Dharma practice. It really matters what we pay attention to. It's not that there isn't a lot of woundedness and a lot of suffering and a lot of action out of that suffering that may be replicating it in different ways. So instead of focusing on the woundedness, we want to focus that on the natural capacity for healing in our heart and in our world. And it's it's not taking the attention away from the woundedness. It's like when we look at the woundedness, we see something else. Like some of us, um, because we're here in Minneapolis, you know, we've, um, I've, Wynn and I have several times now gone, you know, on some of the marches and but also a lot to the area uh, where George Floyd was killed. And just a block or two away, they've got this beautiful memorial um, in this open field of all the people, uh, I'm assuming mostly uh, African-American people who have been killed by police over the last couple of decades. And it's a, there are a lot of people. And just, it's so impactful to see the name, read the name, the dates, the age of the person, the location, the city where it happened or place where it happened. Anyway, so we've gone there. And uh, this is a perfect example. Like you can go to a place like that where something terrible has happened. We can be reminded of injustice and we can, the mind can kind of get obsessed with how unworkable it is or how bad it is. Or the mind can start to sense right there in the space, the seeds of healing, the seeds of transformation the seeds of resiliency that we see in those spaces. 
And the functional question is, what is helpful to pay attention to when we engage any kind of suffering in our hearts, in our worlds? What, when I pay attention to what, does the heart feel more enlivened, more willing to do the stuff of life and to walk this path of liberation, moving in the direction of greater wisdom and compassion? And it's really always that functional question, like what's helpful? What's actually helpful here? So let's just look at some of these suggestions from that conversation between the Buddha and uh, Maha Pajapati Gotai, this aunt of the Buddha, this elder and the Bhikkhuni Sangha, the lineage of enlightened Buddhist nuns, Maha Pajapati, one of the first and one of the great teachers in the early years of the, of the Sangha. And so the Buddha tells her that, um, that when you are practicing, when you're living in a way that orients around dispassion instead of passion, you can feel like, oh yeah, this is the way. So what is dispassion? This passion is that sense of great space in our heart that can really, that sees what's moving, sees what's going on around us, sees the hate, sees the kindness, sees the delusion, sees the clarity, you know, in, in our own heart and mind and those around us and isn't confused by it because it sees it as, in a sense, belonging. Oh yeah, sometimes the world is this way. Sometimes people are really afraid. Sometimes people are really self-righteous. Sometimes people have great penetrating clarity and they can really help everyone around them see what we're not seeing. Sometimes it's like this. And that's a really powerful phrase that allows for dispassion. Because otherwise the habit of the mind is to fall into the deep groove. Okay, I'm knowing something. How do I react to it? as opposed to seeing, experiencing something going on around us or in us and realizing, oh yeah, sometimes it's like that. It kind of is a deep, deep normalization that whatever might be arising in our heart and somebody else's heart in the world, oh yeah, there are causes and conditions for why this is arising. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying, yeah, sometimes it's like this. How do I know it's sometimes like this? Because it's like this right now. This is what's showing up. And it really starts to create space for a more creative and, and, and when necessary, useful, a fierce and fearless response to being unfettered, not to being fettered. So how to be right in the thick of our own healing and the work in the world how to be right in the thick of it without being entangled or fettered, burdened by it. And this is, you know, of course, requires the deepening of wisdom where we can be around our own confusion without being confused about it. And, uh, you know, we've, you know, all of us, you know, in our own way, but, you know, just because it's in front of us in more stark ways these days, you know, as a white person and someone really committed to doing my work as best I can. Um, and uh, being unfettered, it's like, for me, a lot of it is 
when I start to unpack how this heart, this mind has been conditioned in this culture, like around my race being white and all that, all the sort of intricacies of that kind of conditioning, you know, being unfettered. So it's like one of the instructions uh, white people give to white people, right, is like, shame and guilt is a way of avoiding it's a it's just another way of being fettered by our the inherent biases and tendencies of our mind around gender around race around class around any of our fixed fixed and mostly unconscious tendencies and you know all of us you can depending on your own location you can just interpret this you know according to the way that your heart has been conditioned and being unfettered means the alternative to being unfettered means that everything gets to move and be seen. And we're not looking for a way out. We're looking to be free with. We're not looking for some like me that I can be so I'm free from suffering. I'm really looking how to be free with what's moving in the moment with the uncertainty, with the humiliation, with the guilt, with the but not but not gripping, not fixing on anything, because it sort of stops the healing process and the awakening process. The Buddhist instructions continue to shedding, not to accumulating. Right? So it's not about me becoming somebody who's done with the work. Right? We become the person who's totally fine doing the work. And then if the work ends, who knows, you know, if that happens, but that's fine. But I'm not trying to become the person who's done with my work, the work, my personal work, my work in the world. Now, I'll uh, just to be honest, a lot of the time I want to be that person who's done with my work and my work in the world, you know, and I just want that proverbial nice place to hang out. But, you know, with wisdom and seeing it over and over again, to see like, oh, yeah, that's not an ending. There are no endings. Any kind of idea of an ending where I'm safe forever and ever, you know, the sort of fairy tale that we have embedded in spiritual, you know, the ways our mind, minds have been conditioned around spiritual practice, like, yeah, you work hard and then you get your dessert and you're you're free and clear and you get your certificate and you can put it up on your wall that says, okay, you're free and clear. But what seems much more real and authentic in terms of spiritual life is discovering that maybe there's freedom in being in the mix. Like instead of that imaginary freedom, when you're done with the work, maybe I can discover a freedom in the midst of doing the work. And then I don't have to work, get tight about getting done with the work. I can just learn how to be free and released in the middle of the work. That to me seems much more real and doable. So again, to shedding, not to accumulating, the Buddha says, to modesty, not to self-aggrandizement. Now this can be a little bit, uh, the word modesty, of course, is a loaded term. And maybe simplicity might be a better word. Um, yeah, and but I think that the idea is 
just related to what I was saying that uh, that we do, as I mentioned a little bit earlier in the talk, we do have rights to belong, but we really don't. When the more we look, and we do look, because we really, you know, we want to believe that I'm going to get something. It just is a deep groove in our heart and mind. And the more we look, the more we realize we have rights to belong to this process of living, to this very alive world. We have rights to belong, to fully belong. But we don't really, it turns out we don't have rights to own every, anything, to have anything. Like what we chanted this morning, all that is loved, all that I hold dearly will be taken. Nothing can be held on to. Nothing is truly mine, as we imagine it might be. And, you know, as we all sense probably, this is a hard lesson for us to learn. The Buddha continues that Dharma, the path, is about contentment, not discontentment. Seclusion, not entanglement. Seclusion here. Because again, we think about seclusion in the sense of turning off our cell phones and getting into a quiet space for our daily set or going on a retreat for a few days or something like that. That is a kind of seclusion. But really what the word, the spiritual term seclusion points to is the heart is secluded from its tendency to be hateful and its tendency to be greedy and its tendency to disconnect. It's not falling into those deep grooves to be averse, to be greedy, wanting something for me, to be deluded or disconnected. It's not, it's not, so it's secluded from what hinders intimacy. And the thing about those habits you know, we're deeply conditioned, our hearts deeply conditioned to engage through hate, through greed, through distraction. That's the tendency of the mind. And it's always entangling because we don't really, the heart isn't fed in the sense of deep belonging. When we seek it through hate, seek it through greed, seek it through distraction and disconnection. We don't get fed with the one thing that we have rights to, this entering the stream of life and belonging in that stream. So the seclusion is like knowing what is the way and what's not the way. The opposite of seclusion, like being secluded from greed, anger, and delusion, is being entangled with greed, anger, and delusion. And basically, planting seeds for our own suffering and the suffering of others. And the last, or the last two here, the Buddha says, to aroused persistence, not laziness, to being unburdensome, not to being burdensome. So first, this aroused persistence, because once we deeply sense that there is a way to address my own suffering and the suffering in the world, our heart feels energized, enlivened. We don't want to go back to sleep. 
we don't want to fall back into habits, you know, autopilot, because the heart deeply feels now it matters. How I show up, showing up, being intimate, learning the very hard, because of the force of habit, the very hard lesson of non-attachment. Because mostly we learn the truth of non-attachment by feeling the pain of attachment, being attached to this idea, this idea, this stance, this opinion, and over and over and over again, feeling how oppressive that attachment is. Because it takes us out of the stream of life. As soon as I, my mind fixes on a stance, any kind of conceit, being better than, being worse than, being the same as, being different than, any fixed stance is a concept, is a construction of our own mind, like races, right? And class and gender. These are constructions that minds tend to cling to. And because now we're in allegiance with an idea, our mind and culturally maybe together we've constructed and we're clinging, then we're not, we're not really in that alive place of belonging, that place of humility and curiosity and, and being the learner and learning how to be free in the learning. And then the last is, and this could be provocative too, so it, it takes, it's worthy of some unpacking to be unburdensome, not to be burdensome. And this is especially a, a provocative statement at a time when there was a powerful uprising, is a powerful uprising springing up, not just here in the States, but around the world, around the injustice and long-time oppression of people of color, especially people of African descent, more more recent history. And, and uh, this teaching, you know, about being unburdensome might feel like, well, we should just, you know, not rock the boat, not, you know, cause problems. But this, this sort of commitment to not causing, not being a cause for being heavy for the world, for our hearts being heavy, it's really needs to be seen in terms of the long view. There is no greater burden than to put things on hold. And, you know, just politically, and I, I don't know, understand the, the conversation at our state legislature about criminal justice reform, but that the that Democrats and Republicans went home without passing legislation at a time when the reality that things need change is so clear. There's no way to see, and it's not just one video, of course, but to see over and over again what happens. It, it's not about politics, actually. It's about seeing with our human heart the way it is and noticing what happens when we see it in this humble, open way. What is the natural, unavoidable response in our heart? Well, it's something like, this has to change. This is not the way for us to live together, all right? I mean, that's just, I don't understand how it could be any other way for any human heart. And so when we move toward like this commitment to being, to not causing a burden, it means we have to do the difficult work 
of unburdening our hearts, right? We have to speak truth to power. Knowing that that speaking truth to power or doing what needs to be done is really in the direction of the healing and living without all of our hearts being oppressed by ignorance, which is really our essential responsibility. Noticing how our hearts have been contaminated by habits of ignorance, not seeing things as they are. And, and feeling the difficulty, but deeply desiring for our hearts, all of our hearts to be unburdened. I just, and we just have a couple minutes left with a simple, very simple, but very powerful teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh, this powerful Buddhist monk and longtime activist. He was a, you know, really advocate for peace right in the middle of the Vietnam War, hated by both sides, the Viet Cong and North Vietnam and the South Vietnamese government and the U.S. government. And so when he went to protests at the Paris peace talks in the late 60s, uh, they didn't let him back into the country, which was a real boon for the West because Thich Nhat Hanh ended up teaching in the West for many decades. He's now back in Vietnam as a very old man, probably close to death, um, certainly in the last years. And um, um, yeah, just uh, the wisdom that came from really caring and being in the middle of such a profound tragedy of what happened in Vietnam over those many years. And his statement is something like forgetfulness is the only real enemy. And I can see this both as a deep, deep truth for all of us who care about the suffering in the world and just as much a deep, deep truth for anybody just addressing the suffering in their own heart. There's only one enemy, forgetfulness, or the absence of intimacy, the absence of finding our way. And, and, and no one's saying it's easy. Finding our way to trust being connected. Finding our way to open. And remember that way of connecting and opening and feeling in, opening up. We have to find our own way. It's not like going right to the middle of things always because sometimes and maybe not even uncommon sometimes opening right into the middle it's just too much there's too much pain too much ancient trauma who knows what one will find so sometimes it's really knowing what can i pay attention to in this moment what's here and now in this moment well i can notice that this person over here is happy I'm going to pay attention to that. Oh, I can feel this part of my body. Okay, I'm going to pay attention to that. I can feel the sunshine on my skin. I can sing a song. And this is the ancient truth. I mean, human beings have been helping people, just like a mother might hold a child who's feeling really hurt and hum or sing. Right? Well, the child can take their attention off of the pain for a moment and feel this being held by the mother and the music and the song and the just the vibration of the singing even. 
So we all have to find our way and we have to help each other find our way. So we're cultivating this deep trust in opening and connecting and intimacy little by little, finding our way to trust it. So we trust it when it's relatively simple and neutral and we're more apt to be able to trust it when it's not so neutral, when it's hot and difficult to be with. Uh, We'll keep unpacking and applying these teachings from the Buddha, which for me are so relevant, especially at this time, but I'm sure all times. And of course, they're not even the Buddhist teachings. I mean, yes, we say they're the Buddhist teachings, but the Buddha was a human being who did the hard work of stabilizing his mind and heart so it could feel and open and see things as they are. And he had this uncanny ability to articulate what that was like to be open and clear and intimate. So really, this is human common sense, this, you know, truth and wisdom and love from our ancestors, who in their messy and difficult lives, them being embedded in the culture that they were embedded in, just probably as confused and imperfect as the culture that we're embedded in, we've been conditioned by, that somehow they learned how to trust this radical, simple, present moment awareness and to sustain it and to be transformed by it, to transform their own heart and to contribute to the healing in the world around them. So I deeply wish for this to be true for all of us, for myself and all of you and all beings, past, present, and future. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.